This is God's Word. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your inspired words, Lord. Thank You that these are not mere human words that we read week in and week out. Lord, thank You that You you give us Your Word because You desire us to know about You. You desire us to know You personally. You desire us to be changed by You through Your Word. So, Father, I pray this morning that You would anoint Your words. May they be grace to all who hear. Lord, would you enable and empower me to preach your word, to teach your word, Lord? Would you make your word effective, Lord, as you promise? Because your word is living and active and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. So, Father, we pray that you would use your word to pierce to the division of our soul and spirit. Pray that you would make your word effective and give grace to those who hear and grace to me as I preach in your name. Amen. Do you ever feel like you don't have everything that you need? Do you ever feel that way? Like, I, I, don't, I don't have what I need. I don't have everything that I want. And in some sense, we feel like that's really true, don't we? That we don't have everything we need. Maybe you wanted to go to college growing up and you couldn't afford it. Maybe you currently want to get a degree. You want to go to college, but you can't afford it. Maybe you don't have a job or you're unemployed or underemployed. Maybe you feel like you need to be smarter because you don't have all the wits you feel like you need. Maybe you feel like you need to be prettier or more handsome. Maybe you feel like you need a spouse if I could only be married. Or maybe you feel like if my spouse would only talk to me. No elbows right now, by the way. (laughs) Maybe you feel like you, you just can't get any respect. And if, if you only got respect, then you would be fine. Or maybe you feel like, I just need community. I just need people to really know me and connect with them. And Because after all, we're made to have community, and that's a good desire. But I need that. Maybe you're craving good biblical fellowship, deep intimacy with God, in God with somebody else. And that's good, right? Maybe you just need to know, what what is it that God has planned for me? What are God's plans? Because maybe you're confused. Maybe you're discouraged by life. Have you ever ever been there before? Discouraged, confused by life, and you feel like, God, I just just need to know what your plans are for me. I can't can't understand this. I, I, I need to know what's next. I'm at the end of my rope. I don't feel like I can go on. Maybe you've been suffering. Maybe you're in pain. Maybe you're struggling with illness or you've been struggling with protracted illness. And I just need a little relief. Maybe you're suffering and you just want the suffering, the pain to stop. And maybe you're confused and you feel like, is God punishing me somehow? I just, I just need some help here. Some in this room are on the verge of losing their homes. Some don't know how they're going to make ends meet this month and maybe don't know if they're going to be able to afford groceries this week or to pay their electric bill. Some are in danger of many things. So, so what do we do if, if you find yourself identifying with any one of these areas? If you find yourself feeling like you are in need? If you find yourself 
practically, physically in need. If you find yourself in danger, do we just pretend everything's okay? As Christians, how do we live? How do we, how do we live out this Christian life? Do we just act like everything's hunky-dory, everything's okay, nothing's wrong with life, and we're just overcomers and victorious, and everything's alright, and we just pretend to be okay? Is that what we do as Christians? Is that what we're called to? Is Christianity just a feel-good religion? Where we just pretend and we all act like everything's okay? Is that what we're supposed to do to, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps? Is it, is it just another religion? Is it true when Karl Marx said that re- religion is the opium of the people? It, are Christians just blind? Do we just, are we just meant to gloss over hardship and difficulty and pain and suffering? Do we cling to, to ideas to make us happy? The Ephesians and the other churches that this letter was circulated to and written among, they faced all the same kinds of questions that we face today. They faced all the same kinds of hardships now, although without any of the modern conveniences that we have today. Sometimes you might think it's a blessing, but I like a, a, a toilet that runs. I like, I, like, I like running water. I like heat. I like air conditioning. I like to flip a switch. I like things to work. I like lights. They're nice. The Ephesians faced many difficulties in life, many challenges, and in fact they faced probably far more challenges than the majority of people in this room because it would not have been an unheard thing for many of them, as Christians especially, to be on the verge of losing their homes because in that day they could easily have their homes confiscated if they converted and said that God was the only one true God and they renounced the Roman emperor. They could face serious challenges, serious troubles, serious persecution. Early Christianity, it was not an easy believism. It was a real choice where it meant a cost to them. There was a real cost. And it was, it was not, they didn't become Christians because they thought, oh, my life's going to be great. They became Christians because they knew that they had no life outside of Christ. And that the worst the world can give us is pales in comparison to the greatness and the riches of God's grace. They faced hardships and threats to personal security and livelihood and possible jail sentences and difficulties. They they would lose family members if they chose to follow Jesus. They had many needs, I'm sure, if they were alive today and if they were in our shoes, they would probably say they had more needs than most. So what does Paul do? How does Paul address the Ephesians? How does Paul address these churches in Asia Minor is what we kind of call that area now. Well, how, does, how does Paul address them? What does he do to address where they're living to help them understand how to live the Christian life in real life in the context of the ups and downs and hardships and trials and difficulties and all that he knew they faced? And by the way, the Apostle Paul writing to them from prison... How, how does he, a prisoner for Christ, how does he encourage them? How does he give them hope? How does he tell them what's most important about how to live the Christian life? What does he do here? Well, we can see in these verses, the Apostle Paul, he's, he's not lying to them and telling them that everything will be okay. That they'll be, if, you know, they'll be healthy and wealthy if they follow Jesus. That's not the gospel. That's not the good news. In Ephesians 3.13, actually, he is writing to them later on. And he says, I ask you, don't, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. You see, he, he was trying to give them a perspective because they knew he was in prison. And yet, he was the one bringing the message of hope. And what is this message of hope? What is the good news? What is the place for our confidence, for the place for confidence that the Ephesians were to have? See, in Ephesians 4.1, he was saying he was a prisoner for the Lord. And in the midst of that, he could urge them in Ephesians 4, he could urge them to walk in a manner worthy of the, call, worthy of the calling to which they were called. How could he do that? How did he start that? How would he prepare them? How would he set them up at the outset of this letter that he's writing to them? Well, in these verses, he is preparing them to face 
very physical, real challenges, to face spiritual challenges as well. The book of Ephesians really is encouragement in two fronts, how to live in this world and how to live in the face of otherworldly challenges too. How to live as God's people. They were probably tempted to be fearful of the devil and his attacks. So what does Paul do in his letter? How does he start off? How does he address all these challenges that they faced? Well, look down in your Bibles. Ephesians, if you don't have a Bible, look home with somebody else. From verse 3 all the way to verse 23, what is Paul doing? He's He prays. Paul starts off the book of Ephesians with a, a protracted prayer. Verses 3 to 14 are actually one long sentence without any breaks. In the original language, there's no breaks there. He's, he's one long prayerful sentence in verses 3 to 14. 15 to 23, the second sentence. And Paul starts off the book of Ephesians to potentially weary Christians facing difficulties and challenges in real life. How does he start it off? He starts it off with a Godward focus. He starts off the book of Ephesians to orient them where we need to be oriented as well. Where, what's, what's our biggest need in times of trials? What's, where do we find hope when things are difficult, when life is real and hard? Where do we find hope? Where did Paul point the Ephesians to? Why did he begin this way? Because he wanted them to see that we have all that we need in God. Paul's prayer is not just a throwaway. Why did he spend 20 verses on a prayer? That's a little unusual for Paul's writings to spend that much time at the beginning. Well, he's, meant, he's, he's trying to show them what does it look like to turn your soul to God, to, to actually place and have hope in Christ. What does it look like? And so his prayer is instructive and his prayer is God-focused. And his prayer focuses on what is needed most for the Ephesian church. It's not practical instruction. It's not how to get a job. Although I'm sure he would have sat down and counseled folks if he was there. But that's still not the most important thing. It's not, okay, who's a good doctor and this and that. No, it's, it's here's what you need most. You need an eternal, objective, transcendent, glorious truth. And so he starts off the book of Ephesians with a transcendent, objective, glorious truth. And that is that we have all that we need in God. That's what we need to remember. We need to reorient our, our thinking. We need to reorient our lives. When we're facing challenges and troubles and difficulties, and maybe some of those things that I mentioned, maybe you're facing all of those things that I mentioned, what do we need to do? How can we find hope? I propose that we find hope in this kind of prayer. The Christian life is not a life of denying reality. It's facing this, this cold, hard reality of life and finding hope in Jesus and the fact that we have all that we need in God no matter what happens. Even if we're imprisoned, it's no opium. This is a sure and secure hope. It's a hope that we've been sealed with. It's a hope that we can trust in and rely upon that all we have, all we need, we have in God. All that we need, we have in God. Come hell or high water. I believe the main thing God would have us see from our passage this morning really is that, that we have all that we need in God. And look down your Bibles for a second. We're actually up on the screen too. It's Ephesians 1, 3. To get context to this, we, we started with this two weeks ago, but I want to re, re, remind you of this. In Ephesians 1, 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father... Of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the same God and Father as Jesus Christ does. That's how he starts his prayer. And then here's what else he says. He says, who has blessed us in Christ. And, and catch the next four words. He says, with every spiritual blessing. He's reorienting our focus to God who is our Father and the fact that our hope comes from God who is the Father of Jesus Christ is our Father too and He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing not just one blessing, some blessings. We feel like, okay God, You've not given me enough blessings in this life. Paul's saying, no. You need perspective. God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. 
in the heavenly places. You're saying, well, hang on, it doesn't feel that way. And I would propose this because we're so often focused on the here and now, and we fail to see who God is, and we fail to see his heavenly blessings. No, we may never have all that we desire here on earth. And I would say you, you, you will never have all that you desire here on earth. Our desires are tainted and corrupted. And you may often experience hardship and trials. In fact, Jesus, in, in John sixteen thirty three, Jesus tells us, He says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. Here's the objective truth we need to hear. I've overcome Take heart, I have overcome the world. And so Paul reminds the Ephesians of these of his true and real and lasting hope. And the first thing we're going to see in verses 7 and 8, it's the first point this morning, is that we've been given the riches of His grace. We've been given. What have we been given? What are some of these blessings? We heard um, two weeks ago from Aaron talking about the blessings of adoption, the blessings of His choosing. He's chosen us when we didn't merit it. We didn't deserve it. Verses 7 and 8 tell us we've been given the riches. We've been given the riches of His grace. In verse 7 it says, In Him, here's what we have. Here's the part of the every spiritual blessing you've been given. In Him we have redemption. That's a word you need to, to, to stay on for a moment. We have redemption. We have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Paul's saying is as as we are found in Christ, that God pours out every spiritual blessing on us. And he says, in him we have redemption. And why, why is redemption important to us? Why should we care so much about redemption? Why is it important for us to keep our redemption in focus as we face challenges in life? Simply because humanity needs to be redeemed. We're messed up. Humanity's messed up. This world and its social systems are messed up. Humanity needs redemption. All of creation cries out longing for redemption. And each and every human that walks the earth, we need redemption. Our condition is not only bleak apart from Jesus, it's, it's hopeless. It's hopeless enslavement to sin. That's why he couples those two things together. He says we, need, we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we were all in hopeless bondage to the, our inability to do what's right. You know, before God made you alive, you were unable to do what is right and good in His sight. Now, does that mean that unbelievers can't do some good things? No, that inherently God has given us His common grace so that we're, we're able to do some things that are good and, and somehow like God and like He designs for us. But are they ever from a good and right motive? And the answer biblically is no. Without God's redemption, there's no way for us to even have the right motives in serving or being kind or philanthropy. Our condition is hopeless. We're we're hopeless to change our own hearts. And as a Christian, at times, we can struggle with that feeling of hopelessness and feeling like, oh God, just deliver me. I, I want to be free from this sin. We need redemption. And here's the good news, though, when you're facing those moments in life where you feel like you can't overcome your sin. We have. It's not a past tense verb he uses. He says, we have been given. We have redemption. It's our, it's our current possession redemption speaks of being set free of being of being liberated from imprisonment being redeemed from the shackles of death and bondage to our own sinful desires no longer do you have to stay the same and i hope this morning you just heard that no longer do you have to stay the same maybe you don't know jesus or you you've been coming for a while and you like what you hear and your heart is stirred but you don't know what to do with it and you're not exactly sure what does it mean because you're not yet in Christ. And God would say, come to me. Because I want to redeem you. I want to change you. I want to give you real hope. That no matter what happens in your life, if all your friends and money and family fail, I'll never fail. I want to give you redemption. I want to give you the forgiveness of, of sins. We're not doomed to repeat the past. We're not 
bound to live only selfish lives. What he's saying here is we've been set free. And why is that important? Because I think we get so oriented by all these things around us, by the cares of this world, by all manner of things, that we forget that we really are free. We forget the greatness of the freedom that we have in Christ. And we get so locked into our own view of things. And everything becomes big. And God becomes small. And what does he do at the outset of this letter? He starts off with saying, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. We have redemption. We have freedom. We've been set free. We have forgiveness of sins. Think about who he's writing to. Think about the Apostle Paul. He was a a Jewish man. And so as he's writing, I can only imagine that he has in mind the story of the people of Israel, how they were enslaved in Egypt, how initially God brought them to the land of Egypt to, to protect them, to provide for them, to care for them under Joseph and and so the pharaohs were kind for hundreds of years. And then, but eventually pharaohs rose up that didn't know who Joseph was. And they were intimidated by these people of Israel. And so they enslaved the people of Israel. They put them into bondage. And then by the time of Moses, Moses comes and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, you must be kidding. I'm going to make it harder on you now. I'm not going to allow you to incite rebellion. You can't be free. No way. And so what does he do? He says, I'm going to make it harder on you. You have to make bricks now, right? Yeah, you have to make bricks. Here's your quota. But here's the, here's the thing now that you're wanting to be free. I'm going to make you make bricks without the supplies you need to do it. I'm going to make you make the same number. And if you don't make the same number, I'm going to, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to beat you. They were in bondage. They were in slavery. He was a cruel king. He made life hope hard on them. They had no hope for relief. They had no way out, no means to go free. They've been enslaved for so long, they were unable to sustain and provide for themselves outside of Egypt. But what did God do? God, God mightily delivered the Israelites. And how did He do that? He sent ten plagues on the people of Egypt until finally the Pharaoh relents and says, Okay, just go and worship your God for a few days, but then don't, don't go too long. And then he realizes what happens, and with a fury he pursues them. And he's not going after them to like, hey, hey, by the way, I forgot to say goodbye. If you read the, the biblical account, he is pursuing them to kill them. He is after them with wrath. He takes chariots. Where, those were the, the, the tanks of that day. They were instruments of war. And, and they, they weren't meant to make peace. And so the, the Israelites find themselves in this place trapped between the sea And they've got their kids and their livestock and everything with them. And then they see this dust cloud coming up and the Pharaoh's horde is coming after them. And could you imagine the feeling of hopelessness you would have at that moment? Could you imagine if you were a mom or a dad and you've got your little kids with you and you're holding their hands and you're thinking, oh gosh... Could you imagine the terror as a child if you if you thought, I'm going to die? There's no hope. We left slavery and it got worse. We thought it couldn't get worse. It got worse. Now we're facing death with no hope for deliverance. So what does God do? God does what's in his character. You see, God is a redeemer. It's who God is. And God, all throughout Scripture, reveals Himself time after time, time after time, that He is the great Redeemer. And so God parts the sea, and He helps the people of Israel walk through on dry land. And then, when all the fury and wrath of the king come after them, He crushes the Egyptians, and He rescues them. Can you imagine the feeling then of amazement? The feeling of Confused but joyful amazement. Oh my goodness. He he parted the sea. We just walked through that. That was unreal. I can't even believe that happened just now. And the kids were like, Tom, did you see those the waves? They were and and you know, there were shadows of whales or whatever up in the side. And 
They're walking through in dry land and then all their enemies are vanquished. The, the most powerful army in the world is put down. Why do we have stories like that in Scripture? It's to point to the fact that God is a great Redeemer. But that, that wasn't the greatest redemption that God wrought in human history. You see, there was something far greater than Pharaoh, who was an enemy on this plane, the very enemy of our souls, the one who without God would... We would be condemned to death and hell and torment and to be enslaved to the devil. It's a a greater slavery. It's an eternal slavery that we face. It's an eternal punishment that we face. It wasn't just here on this earth. And the message that God wants the Ephesians to get and wants us to get is that he is the great redeemer. And he's redeemed even greater than how he redeemed the people of Israel, he now has a true possession who he's truly redeemed. And how did he do it? He didn't do it through the, through the parting of water. He did it through the blood of his own son. I can imagine how it must have felt the relief as you've just seen your freedom happen right, right behind you. And you turn and see, oh my goodness, there was no hope. Now we have hope. That's meant to be how we see our freedom in God. It changed everything for the Israelites. It's meant to change everything for us because not only does it change how we view the world, but it changes our hearts. It changes our desires. It changes our abilities. We can now be pleasing to God because we've been redeemed. We've been set free. God is pleased with us now. He's not angry at us any longer. We don't deserve God's wrath anymore. Why? Because Jesus took all that we deserved. We don't face the punishment that is never-ending torture for our sins. We have forgiveness of sins. That's meant to give us perspective on all of life, when life's hard, when life's difficult. No, this is not an easy believism. This is a hope that's sure and secure that says, you know what, this world is tough, but we have a great God who's a redeemer and redeems all things. And by the way, it doesn't end there. That's a foretaste. We've been given this this foretaste of redemption because God's going to redeem all things and make all things new. And so now we have this down payment, if you will, of redemption. It says in verse 8, How did God do this? It says, He did this according to the riches of His grace. Look in verse 8. It says, Which He lavished. Which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. We can be tempted to to blaspheme God at times. We can be tempted to say untrue things about God at times in our lives. We can be tempted to say things like, God is not gracious with me. God is not good to me. God must be angry with me. Friend, don't, don't be confused. Don't be tempted that way. He has lavished upon us His grace in all wisdom and insight. Now, not, not our wisdom and insight. In all wisdom and insight. We don't understand at times, what is God's grace here? How is this suffering? I can't see it. I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. How has he lavished all grace? And it says in, in all wisdom and insight. And the inference there is God is the, the giver of all wisdom and insight. So when we face times when we don't understand and we won't understand, we can have hope and realize that no, God has lavished his grace on us in all of his wisdom and insight. And even when I don't understand, I'll pray, Lord, help me understand. But God, in the meanwhile, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to look to you. I'm going to have hope in you. Thank you that you've lavished your grace upon me. Thank you that you've given me forgiveness of sins. Thank you that you've redeemed me, even when I don't feel it. Sometimes we get worked up about things and life looms large, though, doesn't it? I get worked up on all kinds of things. It's silly. Sometimes the silly stuff is what I get most upset about. Often we're more aware of what we don't have or maybe what we wish we had. There's times when I dream about winning the lottery and think that that would fulfill all my needs. If I I could just, I don't want to win a lot, God, but if I could just win like a million, you know, just a million. Not like, I don't want the, the Powerball or the whatever, the Mega Millions, the $300 million. I don't need that much because that would be probably sinful to want that much. And I don't know. I just feel bad about maybe that's covetousness. But just a million dollars. 
you know, 50,000 a year, amortized over 20 years. I mean, that's not a lot. Should they help pay the bills? <laughs> we can think at times that doing, winning the lottery will fulfill all of our needs, but it, it, it won't. It wouldn't. If we had all riches, if we had total and complete health, if everybody loved you or you thought everybody loved you or they treated you like that, if everything went your way, if we always got what we wanted, here's the problem with that. Why does God not allow those things to happen? Why? Because we wouldn't know that we need God and we would not know that God is all we need. So in His divine mercy, He allows difficulties and troubles and trials in His wisdom and in His insight. At times, those things are His very grace on us so that we look to the only source of our hope. We look to Him in hope. If we had everything we didn't we need but we didn't have God's grace, what would you have? You would have terror. If you didn't have God's grace, you wouldn't have forgiveness. If you didn't have God's grace, you wouldn't know God. How hopeless would that be? If you didn't have God's grace, you wouldn't have true, true freedom. We, we wouldn't have any spiritual blessing. You wouldn't have real hope. You wouldn't have real peace. You wouldn't have real security. Maybe you find yourself here this morning thinking, I want those things. I, I know that's true. I don't have those things. And Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. How do you do that? You place your faith. You say, God, I want to trust in the fact that you said that you took my place, that Jesus, you took my place and you took the punishment that I deserve. And God, Jesus, I trust that and I want to put no hope, no trust in myself any longer. And so I'm going to stop living for myself. I want to live for you and he'll make you alive. He'll redeem you and give you hope and peace and security even when things continue to go bad. And they make it worse if you become a Christian. I don't want to give you any easy believing message. You know, um, you have a God-shaped hole in your heart. Uh, n- no. <laughs> the things that matter most, God has taken care of. The things you're most desperate for, that you needed most, whether you know it or not, God has accomplished. He's adopted us. He's lavished His grace on us. He's given us every spiritual blessing. Here's the other thing, really. Every spiritual blessing, what does that mean? Lavished upon us all riches. Well, Paul, the same author, he writes somewhere else in Romans 8, 31. Paul writes to us, he says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And what that's implying is that people will be against us. But if God is for us, it doesn't matter who can be against us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, temper that to all things and lavished all grace and all spiritual blessings. What in the world? What is Scripture saying? That Okay, if, if we believe in God, he's going to give us everything we want. Well, no, it's not, it's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is he'll give you everything that you need for life and godliness. He'll give you everything that you need to have hope. He'll give you everything that you need to live a life that is pleasing for him. A life of worship, a life that glorifies God. You know, Abraham didn't understand what God was up to, even though he trusted in God's promises. He didn't get it. He didn't see the end. He didn't know the end game. People of Israel didn't understand what God was up to when they were wandering in the wilderness. Moses did not understand fully what God was up to. Well, perhaps the greatest man in the Old Testament still didn't understand fully God's plans. From the sin of Adam and Eve until Jesus Christ came, no one understood the mystery of God's will and what God's plans were. But it was clear that God had a plan for creation. From the very beginning, we hear a hint of that right in the beginning of Genesis when he is cursing the serpent and he says, but one day she will, she will bear a seed and that seed will crush the serpent's head. So God had a plan from the very beginning and we see earlier in Ephesians a couple weeks ago we saw that God has actually predestined us and chosen us and elected us before we even had a thought God had a plan and, and He had purposed something for us and now it tells us in verses 9 and 10 here's what it tells us. He's made known to us the mystery of His will. And that's the second point we're going to focus on this morning. It's really just a simple point. We've been shown, he's, or we've been shown the mystery of His will. We've been shown the mystery of His will. Let me read those verses again in verse 9 and 10. 
It says, making known to us the mystery of His will. What has God done? What's His glorious riches and His grace He's lavished upon us? He's made known to us who were blind, who could not know Him. We now know Him. He's made known to us. He's enlightened us. He's, he's illuminated our minds with, for thousands and thousands of years. All of humanity could not figure out. He's made known to us the mystery of His will and His good pleasure to save a people to himself. It says according to his purpose. Which he set forth in Christ. Look at this. As a plan for the fullness of time. All of time is oriented around Jesus Christ. In the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. At just the right time. God revealed the culmination of all of his plans. To unite all things in Jesus Christ his son. And through Jesus, God would truly unite God and man once more where there were irreconcilable differences and no hope. God has now united all things in Him. We can be united in God. We're united in Christ. That's glorious. If you know Jesus and you know who He is and you know why He came and you understand that He is the fulfillment of all God's plans To redeem mankind. And if you know those things, then you can be assured that God has made known this mystery to you. And that's assurance that that He's chosen you, that He's elected you, that He's called you. Part of this plan is that God has always planned to unite every different nation, every different tribe, a people from every different language, all into one family, into His people through Jesus. And much of Ephesians, what is... One of the main things about Ephesians, well, one of the main points of Ephesians is written to help us understand what it truly means to be God's people, the church, the body of Christ. That He's united all things in Christ. In Christ and His bride are the fulfillment of all of God's plans. I like the way that the New American Standard Bible uh, version puts it. It says that God is summing up all things in Christ. He's summing up all things in Christ. All of the cosmos are summed up in Christ in some way. And Jesus is the one who's going to restore harmony to the entire universe. And we know that in Romans it tells us that all of creation was groaning. Because man introduced sin into sinless creation. And creation, all of creation, the cosmos became corrupted. What was good is now groaning. All the created order has had sin and death and decay enter in and is in need of being restored. And what's he saying in these verses? Where's our hope? He says all the created order, all things united in the heavenly places and on earth will be united, made brand new in Him. That's hope. One day the heavenly kingdom will be completely united with the earthly kingdom. One day His kingdom will become just as it is in heaven, here on earth. Even though this mystery has been revealed in the Bible, the fulfillment of God's plan is yet to be fully carried out. So how is this meant to give us hope? We can rest assured knowing that nothing is outside of God's plans. Maybe you feel like, my life is crazy right now. You can know that nothing is outside of God's plans. God worked all of human history up to the present time He's he's worked all of human history before Jesus and since Jesus to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of His plans. To redeem all of mankind, to redeem all of creation, to unite all things in Him. Nothing is going to thwart God's plans for God's people. And why does He talk about predestination here in the same context? Because He wants us to know that we too can't reverse God's plans for us. If you are in Jesus Christ, if you've become a Christian... You can have assurance knowing that He's chosen you. And nothing will unchoose you. Nothing will undo His plans. Because it had nothing to do with you to begin with. It was all His good pleasure. It says it was to the working of His good purposes. Even though we don't understand His purposes, we don't see how God's working all things together for our good. It tells us in Romans 8 that He is working everything together for the good of those who love Him or are called according to His purposes. God's still working His good plans and make all things new. But you know what? We lack perspective, don't we? Do you ever lack perspective? 
You ever, things ever seem big to you? Bigger than God at times? You ever get freaked out and fearful and worried and angry? I do. Back in 1984, some of you weren't alive. Back in 1984, I was a adolescent young man, and there was at the time this this groundbreaking movie that came out in 1984. It had never before seen special effects. It was just really cool, at least to a 12 to 14 year old boy. It was really cool. It had all these special effects. It had multiple camera angles, and it it made the extraordinary out of brooms and blades of grass. And I'm maybe you're guessing this great movie, this Honey I Shrunk the Kids, 1984. That was an awesome movie. Um, if you go back and watch it now, it'll drive you nuts. But in 1984, that was a groundbreaking. Nobody had ever had those camera angles and like riding a bee and riding a ant and all the other weird stuff they did and. Um, and if you haven't seen it, go back and watch it just for funny laughs. It, 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 it has some humor to it. But um, back then it was awesome until all those ridiculous sequels came out that nobody liked. But um, in the movie, in the, in the original movie, the good movie, um, the kids become shrunk and they're really small. And they're so small that a blade of grass looks like this gigantic tree. And um, the broom is like this this weapon of mass destruction, just sweeping a path of death. And, and I know, it doesn't sound really scary, but you've got to go back and see the movie. And all these things become so huge, a common broom is massive, and they somehow they end up in the backyard. I can't remember how they went from the house to the backyard or however that happened. And But these blades of grass in this neatly trimmed yard, they become insurmountable obstacles. There's threats on every side. Everything is huge. The kids, they're vulnerable, but being blasted by even these the small water drops as the sprinkler kicks on. They're going, oh no, the sprinkler. Slow motion. These big water drops come out. Boom! And giant water bombs drop all around the kids and they're they're in danger. And everything's huge. Everything's so big to them. Everything's a threat. Their entire perspective on the world, it's been dramatically altered. I would submit that sometimes we we become like the shrunken version of those kids in life. And everything becomes huge to us. The, the seemingly normal, mundane things of life can become large and insurmountable. And even mowing the grass seems like something you can't do. Believe me, I've gotten angry because of the grass. I mean, you know, the grass is so big and... It, uh, were actually gumballs in my previous house. Thank, thanks be to God. I have no gumballs in this current house. I, we moved and we don't have those little insidious little things that fall from the trees and they, they hurt you when you walk and you can't get them up when you mow and they're just, they're a bane of my existence. But sometimes things like that can become huge to us. Things in life can become big. We can forget that He's working all things together for the good. We can forget that He is the creator of the cosmos and He's going to unite them all in Him. We can forget who God is, what He's done, how big He is, where our hope is. We need perspective. God wants us to see that not everything is so large as we think, but He is not so small as we think. We need to know that nothing can stop God's plans and and Paul is trying to drive home that we have all we need in God. And the third thing, the final thing we're going to see is that Paul prays that we would have the comfort, that we have all we need in Christ. He prays this. He says, we've been given assurance of our inheritance. This is the third point we're looking at. We've been given assurance of our inheritance. You can read that another way too, is, is that we've been made an inheritance. In Him we've obtained or become an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. It's both we've received an inheritance and we become God's inheritance, His possession, His people. If you, if you knew, just think for a moment, if you knew right now that you all of a sudden discovered this long-lost Uncle Silas, making up a name, your long-lost Uncle Silas, and you find out that he is a multi-billionaire. And you know what? He's got no heirs and you are the only living heir. And you have this inheritance coming and, and you just have to wait until Uncle Silas dies. Now you're not hoping that he dies, but 
Same time, you know it's guaranteed because you're the only heir. It's going to come. Do you think that would affect the way you view the world? Billions of dollars coming to you. Do you think that would affect the way that um, your, what you hope in the future? Do you think you would live in anticipation of that? Do you think you would long for that maybe? Even sinfully so. But you, you, might, you might long for that. You would anticipate that. I think it would probably affect your confidence, wouldn't it? And when, how would you be affected by momentary financial pressures? You know what? I'm not making the bills meet this month. But you know what? Just wait a few more years. And then I won't have to worry about those bills. I can hang on. I can do this. Wouldn't you be, have some hope to hang on financially until the inheritance was received? I think you would, right? There's another a popular book in 1950-something, a 51, I think. Um, C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book called Prince Caspian. And in Prince Caspian, this young prince is growing up with his, his uncles raising him, and he doesn't really know who he is. He doesn't know that he's the rightful heir of the kingdom of Narnia. He doesn't know that he's the one who's been chosen by Aslan, the king of all. He doesn't know that he's been chosen to, to lead this redemption. This, this, he doesn't know that he's been chosen to lead people. He doesn't know that he's been chosen to inherit everything and to, to bring the kingdom of Aslan back into its glory. He doesn't know that. But when Dr. Cornelius he explains who he is and what he's meant to do, he's a long-awaited one, it changes everything. It changes his perspective. And he's able to live in the woods, not as a prince, but live in the woods and endure hardships and difficulties and trials because he knows who he is. He knows what his inheritance is. And we're meant to live differently because of our inheritance. It's meant to affect us. It's meant to give us hope and say, you know what? What matters most is this eternal inheritance that I am going to receive this momentary and light afflictions, are they pale in comparison. We have an inheritance in Jesus, and at the same time it tells us that we're people for God's own possession. We're, we're His inheritance too. We belong to God through Jesus. We're no longer our own. We've been bought with a price. We've been adopted. We've been brought into His family. And that's meant to affect how we live practically too. Knowing that you're, you belong to God. You've been chosen, predestined, purchased, redeemed by His blood. Bought with a price. That's supposed to affect how we live. Not out of guilt, but out of worship. I want to live my life for Him. So, maybe you're in the seventh grade. And the other kids are making fun of that boy that looks funny. Or the girl who dresses differently. Or the kid who's awkward or overweight. And if you've been made alive as a Christian, you can say, I'm not going to join in. I'm not going to do those things. I'm going to love that other kid because... My adopted father doesn't treat me that way. And I want to show his love because I was completely unlovely. And I want to show his love to the unlovely at, at my school. Maybe you're in high school and all your classmates are getting drunk and, or getting high or whatever it is they're doing. And you can say no because you, you know that you don't belong to yourself. You belong to God and he wants you to live for him. Because he's bought you with a price and he loves you and he's lavished every grace upon you. Even though you mean it, you'll be mocked or maybe treated like an outcast, rejected when you don't do the things that other people do. And your worth isn't in what other people think about you. It's in the fact that God has chosen you to be His people and God's made you His son, His daughter. You don't need the approval of others because God has accepted you in Jesus. In college, maybe, maybe, maybe you're here and you're tempted to have sex with your girlfriend, your boyfriend, and you can say no because you belong to Jesus and you don't have to look to physical gratification for fulfillment and you don't have to look to somebody else for acceptance. You can find acceptance in Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're just you're you're wanting a relationship with you're wanting to be married, you're wanting a spouse, you want a relationship, well you want you want so many things and we have so many needs and desires and those things can take priority and precedence for us and loom large for us. And God says, no, you have all that you need in me, in Christ, in me. I want you to find fulfillment. When you look to all these other things, no matter how good they seem, even when you get those things, they will not be fulfilling. They will not be what's best for you. They will not be what's good for you. So often God withholds some things out of kindness to us. 
God predestined us, it tells us, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of His glory. And that's primarily talking about the Jews who were thought that salvation came through their birth. And no, it's come from hope in Jesus Christ. But then it says in verse 13, In Him you also, and He's speaking to all of us as well, and you, in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You've been sealed. What's a seal? What does this mean when it says you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit? In Matthew's gospel, it tells us that Jesus' tomb, it was sealed, and the soldiers were put around it to guard it. What was it sealed for? It was sealed for protection. It was sealed to keep Keep safe. It was sealed to secure it, to close it in. In biblical times as well, correspondence would be sent in, in, a, in a scroll and it would be sealed with a wax and a stamp proving who it came from. And it would show that it was authentic. So a seal is a sign of authenticity as well as a seal of protection and security. And in the book of Revelation, God, He he seals, He puts a seal and a sign on His servants as a way of protecting them from the coming wrath and so to be sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, what does it mean? It's, it's pregnant with all that meaning. It, it's to be secure. It's to be protected from, from without. It's to be guarded. It's also to have a sign of authenticity that we really do belong to Him. There's hope there. It's also a seal in the sense of God's protection from evil. And later on in Ephesians, we talks about spiritual warfare... He, he, he spells out how, does, how is God protecting us by His Holy Spirit. God's given us His Holy Spirit as a sign of the fact that we're His true children to protect us from evil, for, to give us hope. And ultimately, really, it's so that we be kept to the end. It says in verse 14, He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we... Here's this. This is good news, isn't it? He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. He's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Nothing will keep our inheritance from us. God, the Holy Spirit, is our guarantee. And all of that's to the praise of His glory. Been guaranteed. He's a down payment that guarantees our inheritance until we receive it. You put a contract on a house when you want to buy a house and you make a down payment in order for the bank to give you the right to buy the house. And we did that a few months ago and now the house is ours in a very real sense, but we really don't own it fully yet. But we have a guarantee. The Holy Spirit's given to us as a guarantee and installment of the, of the good things to come. It's already ours, but not fully yet. And God has done all of this so we might praise Him for His glory. If the band will come up, I know it's noon, but let's come up with the band. If you'll stand, please. I want to sing that song to the praise of His glory. Matt, I think, is that the one we sang? So here and now, if you go ahead and stand, everybody would be great. How can we respond in the here and now, in the nitty-gritty of life, in the very real difficulties and trials and hardships and pain that you may be facing? How can we respond? I think a good place for us to start is to see this prayer. And following the prayer of the Apostle Paul, get perspective and remember that all that we need, we have in Jesus Christ. And it's meant to give us a very real and lasting hope indeed. Let's worship.